Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some uh, silent Soviet films, as recommended by David Bax of Battleship Pretension, and in this week's episode, I'll be wrapping up the theme by talking about Ziga Veritov's 1929 film, the man with a movie camera. Um, I will preface this as I have done with the past couple episodes that there's a couple different versions of this movie. Um, if you are looking it up to watch it specifically on uh, Prime, there are actually five different versions, only two of which are actually available. So I don't entirely know, one, why there are so many different versions, and two, what the differences between them are. But if you are curious, then um, I am specifically reviewing the very first one that you will find if you search for Man with a Movie Camera on uh, Prime Rental. Um, and that is the one that is, um, it, it's not the Kino Video one. It's the one that has been restored uh, by the EYI Film Institute in Amsterdam um, with a digital treatment that was done by Lobster Film. So it's actually quite a pristine image. It's quite wonderful. But I also think that um, if I could guess... The, the biggest difference between it and the Kino version in, on top of um, the price, because one the one that I watched I think is $4 for a rental, the Kino version I think is $5, and also this one you can rent in quote-unquote HD, the other one you can only rent in SD, but I think the primary difference, the one that you are going to immediately notice if you are not a art historian or a Russian historian or a cinephile or anything, is I believe the score. Um, this... Uh, this at some point in the past, um, this film was restored and, and a score was redone um, by uh, Michael Nyman, who was, uh, you may know him, from uh, he did the score for Jane Campion's The Piano. So he did the score for the Kino video uh, version one. I believe the score that's done on the, the one that I was watching and the one that I'm referring to was done by Cinematic Orchestra. And so it is, you know, if you're a purist, then I'm sorry. Um, it is clearly not the score that the film originally intended to have, but I think based on what they've done, it works really well with uh, the editing of the film, the, uh, you know, the, the cutting, the pacing. It's actually quite fitting and actually quite a modern, but... Um, it, uh, Modern in the sense of like you obviously this is not a, a score that was done in 1920s Soviet Union, but also um, enough uh, not modern enough where it seems incongruous with what you are seeing. Um, but enough with the preface. Let's get into the discussion of this final film that I am talking about for uh, the the theme of of Soviet silent films or silent Soviet films. I can't recall if I've um, used those two terms or descriptors interchangeably, but here we are. Um, Man with a Movie Camera is um, quite an interesting film, and I I say interesting in, in both a, the, the sense of, like, I do find this film to be quite fascinating, but also interesting in the sense of when you'll say that something is interesting, but you don't necessarily like it. It's just very different from what you are used to or expecting, and I will get into that um, in more detail, of course. Um, but Man with a Movie Camera is um, arguably as important or formative when it comes to film art and and, and being a piece of, of propaganda and how it furthered the you know the the aesthetic and and, and 
the craft of, of cinema. Um, in 2012, the Sight and Sound poll ranked it the eighth uh, best film of all time, um, and the and just being as the fact that as it was the only documentary in the top ten, it was then um, by process of elimination the best documentary of all time according to them. Um, if you're wondering what the best film of all time according to Sight and Sound is, do you want to take a guess? I'll give you a couple seconds. Do 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 do. Vertigo. It was Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo is um, the number one film of all time according to the 2012 Sight and Sound poll, uh, with which I disagree. But that is for another time in another place. Um, yeah, it's it's quite interesting, and um, a lot of this comes down to um, why both, one, why I find it such an interesting and engaging film, and also why I have problems with it, comes down to, at the core of it, Ziga Vertov as a, not as a person, maybe a little bit as a person, but also Ziga Vertov as a filmmaker. Um, Ziga Vertov's real name was uh, Dennis Kaufman. Uh, Ziga Vertov, I believe, is a, a Ukrainian phrase that slightly translates to, like, uh, wobbling top or spinning top or something like that. Um, his brother Mikhail uh, is the, the quote-unquote star of the film, the guy who plays the camera operator. He had another brother named Boris Kaufman who ended up winning an Oscar for shooting um, On the Waterfront in the 1950s. Um, and before he was a... Before Ziga Vertov was a, a director, he was an editor for Soviet newsreels, um, which I think is very interesting because of um, the approach that he took to film. Um, it, it's really informed by what he, you know, not just cutting his teeth on cutting newsreels, but also just based on um, a, a more intimate relationship with um, how image can be used to tell a story versus Sergei Eisenstein or Pudovkin with, uh, with you know, Battleship Potemkin and Mother, respectively, whereas they were coming at it from maybe different traditions. Um, he was coming at it strictly from a, a, not strictly, but he was coming at it first and foremost through a, a, a visual tradition and how to specifically tell a story using um, visuals. Um, it, it, and it's interesting because this movie still does the same job that Battleship Potemkin does and that Mother does in the sense of it propagandizes the USSR and you see the, you know, the on the surface, the benefits of what it's like to um, live in a communist country, specifically the USSR. Um, but while those two romanticize kind of the past and the revolutionaries which got us to this wonderful, glorious Soviet state that we currently live in, this one is much more, it, it's in the here and now, you know, the here and now for uh, the, the late 1920s, um, but sort of kind of showing you hey, here are the benefits of what this Soviet state is now. It's not looking back to the past, it's looking to the, or at least at that time, looking to the present and just kind of trying to show you the benefits of this, uh, basically kind of the, the Soviet machine. Um, so, but, but at the same time, it also, he pretty much snubs Eisenstein and Podovkin um, in the sense of how he approaches filmmaking, what he believes a film should do, what he believes a film should be, basically. Um, but similar to those first two films, the message and the method are intertwined. You can't really separate the two from each other because it is the method in which he makes a film which espouses the values of the Soviet state. And, you know, it is the... It's it just these two are so intertwined and so connected with each other that um, while all three of these filmmakers kind of approached... Um, the Soviet state in a different way, or had, you know, the, though they had the same thoughts about it, basically, in the sense of how glorious and wonderful it was, they all had different approaches to how they were, um, how they were telling the story, or, or, or at least what makes this, this, uh, this, this Soviet state great. Um, 
Shortly after the October Revolution in 1917, Zigavertov got very fascinated in like machinery and trains uh, specifically, and, and so that led him to have a curiosity about the, the mechanical nature of cinema, and you see that in basically every single frame of this movie in two ways, both in the sense of how visually the film draws equivalency or comparisons between machines and people, and not in a dehumanizing way, but in a, a manufacturing and efficiency and productive sort of way you know the 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 people are the fuel that are driving the machines of industry in the you know in the USSR so it, it, it equates those two things together in a positive way but then also it's prevalent in the sense of just how many different technical tricks he uses to make this film um, it is a documentary on the surface it is categorized as a documentary um, and yet there are so many different filmmaking techniques that would become so prevalent in fiction film uh, later on and, and when at least when it comes to observation and, and, uh, and documentary filmmaking in uh, Koyanis Kwatsi uh, you know decades later but I mean double exposure over cranking under cranking um, uh, you know, split screen, um, visual uh, visual effects, stop motion. You know, he he used all of these things to tell this story, to kind of propagandize this wonderful quote unquote city. It's we'll get to that in a little bit, but basically, this city in this twenty four hour day, he uses so many different techniques to kind of show you how um, what the people, what the citizenry, what the state is capable of doing. Um, and how he utilized the camera, the, the capabilities of it, was, you know, while, while it initially came from that curiosity with, with machinery and with mechanics, um, it also then was kind of fed by a, a, a distaste that he had a narrative. Like, here's a thought that I forgot, but one thing that I was thinking of while I was watching this movie was, you know, that idea of, of you know, the, the quote-unquote the Soviet machine, as we saw in a lot of films in the, in the 1980s, specifically in America, think of Ivan Drago in, in Rocky IV, or uh, think of um, the Kurt Russell movie Miracle, you know, the, the U.S. hockey team, Olympic hockey team versus the Russian or Soviet hockey team in the, in, uh, the 1980s Olympics. And there's that joke that Jack O'Callaghan makes, you know, like uh, someone says, like, don't these guys ever smile while they're watching um, footage of, of the Soviet team practicing? And Jack O'Callaghan says, like, they're, you know, the Russians, they get shot at, they smile. And just this idea of this Russian machine of efficiency and of power and of just kind of domination, I saw the early seeds of that planted here by, as I said, this idea of comparing or equating Soviet machinery with Soviet people, and of efficiency with people, and of the industry with people. This idea of the Soviet machine and how they would just be kind of become this um, anonymous, what would ultimately become a dehumanized force under Joseph Stalin, but just this idea of an anonymous, like, collective force I see that beginning here in Man with a Movie Camera, and then it eventually became what it became in, in the, what, the stereotype that we're used to in, you know, American films in the 1980s and such. But um, Ziga Vertov playing with what a camera is capable of and pioneering a lot of these early filmmaking techniques was really fed by a, a distaste that he had in the narrative. Um, after the new economic policy, which was under Vladimir Lenin in 1921, Russia began letting in foreign fiction films, you know, kind of a, we saw this again under, I believe, Mikhail Gorbachev in the 1980s. Once again, if I have any Russian listeners, I apologize for my history. This was just some Wikipedia searching and, and some basic news articles as I was kind of doing research for this. But there's just this idea of opening the, the borders and the, and the barriers of the state to 
outside, you could say, influence um, and culture, basically. Um, and Ziga Veritov hated this. He considered fiction films a, quote-unquote, corrupting influence on the proletariat. Um, as I was doing a lot of research on Ziga Veritov as a director and as a person, I kind of realized, like, he was definitely the obnoxious guy in your MFA film class who... Um, who never saw Jurassic Park. You know, he never saw Back to the Future because they were too conventional. You know, the guy that had ideas of, like, there are right ways and there are wrong ways to make a movie, or there are right ways and wrong ways for cinema to be used. You know, he was that snooty, pretentious guy, basically. Um, he kind of, um, he was the he was the forebearer. I don't know if forebearer's a word, but he, um, he... He paved the path that Jean-Luc Godard would, would, uh, would later walk down in the 1960s. And, and these kind of people really bug me because they are, they are visionary and they are super talented, but also they have these very specific ideas on there is a good way and a bad way to use cinema. Um, here are some quotes from Ziga Vertov uh, that he himself said when he was um, – he, he wrote a, 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 an essay in, in a magazine called – or a, a publication called Kinofot. I'm sorry about the the mispronunciation, if there is one, but uh, it, it was under this piece called uh, We, Variant of a Manifesto. Um, and he says, We consider the psychological Russo-German film drama weighed down with apparitions and childhood memories as absurdity. Um, and in uh, he wrote another essay a little bit later called The Man with a Movie Camera. Um, and he said that in it he was fighting for a decisive cleaning up of film language for its complete separation from the language of the theater and literature. So here's this guy who has a really, a really distaste for, as he, as he says himself, theater and literature, but just this idea of narrative um, fiction filmmaking. He really hates it, and he thinks that there is a purer way to use cinema, that there is, that, uh, that, that bringing in fiction, that even, even Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin, that it, it's an inferior work, basically, because it doesn't stand on its own as a cinematic art, that basically the the narrative, the story that you are trying to tell is so tied to another art, whether it is theater, whether it is literature, this idea of a of a progressing narrative, that it, it's it's corrupting. This is not what cinema should be used for. Cinema should be used strictly as images, and you should use only images to tell a story. And that's why if you're watching this movie, at the beginning there's basically, uh, there's a few, a few title cards which sort of preface the film, kind of saying there's no sets, there's no actors. Everything that you are seeing is just as it is. There are no interstitials, there are no titles either, because all that you are, all that you should be seeing is image. All that you should see is cinema. You don't need the story, you just need the visuals to tell the story, to, to express the emotions basically also he had that as a, in a, in a he had those that preface as a, a practical term or practical term for practical purposes as well because um he didn't want russian censors to throw the film out because there wasn't a big appetite at that time for anything that was kind of experimental or sort of um outside of um those mainstream narrative fiction films that were kind of coming in. So he wanted to make sure this film wasn't thrown away and censored and, and, and got him in, in trouble. And, and of course, um, as is the case, you know, as was the case then is the case decades later in, in, in you know, the world of today where the controversy and the intrigue behind it kind of actually made the film a, a bit more popular. Um, and so I don't want to, I don't want to discredit Ziga Veritov, and I don't want to discredit this film because there are moments of remarkably effective 
filmmaking storytelling techniques. Just a couple that come to mind are um, there's a, a sequence um, early on in the film in which um, we in which the the this, the images are cutting back and forth between an ambulance and a woman that is bedridden, and based on the pain and the anguish on her face, and those images also intercut with a funeral procession, we are led to believe that what we are about to see, or what we are seeing, is a woman dying. That this is um, the last moments of someone, which, you know, in a practical sense, I was kind of thinking like, oh my god, how did he get access to this dying woman and yet then we are shown one other image in which it is a um a baby being pulled from her and she is not um and it's revealed that we are that she was not in anguish because she was dying but she was in anguish because she was giving birth which is the exact opposite of what we had come to expect and it is it's it's it is a wonderful technique because it is just through using image we have tension we have expectations and then we have those expectations being subverted without dialogue without an interstitial with just image with just um withholding image and then showing at the right moment and you and how those images juxtapose with each other we understand that this is actually uh, this is actually something that's beautiful, and and it's 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 within this whole montage of death and of weddings and of a funeral procession and of a baby being born, and it's just this whole grand pastiche of like, this is a day in Russia. There is birth, there is death, there is celebration, there is mourning. Everything is happening within the confines, not within the confines, but everything is happening at this great state every single day. Humans are living their lives and having the human experience. Basically, um, there's a there's there's also he he uses a few different instances where double exposure of crowd scenes make the city seem like it's even more bustling than I'm sure it actually was uh, in real life. Um, we have um, a sequence in which uh, there is a camera perched at the top of a building that is sort of with a long lens, look, kind of looking down at a building. Inside that building, we see that there are two people who are who are filing for a marriage certificate. And, uh, you know, and then a little bit later on, we have the camera turn around in a complete 180 degree and look in the other direction. And we are then inside of an office in which a couple is having a, are filling out their marriage or, or their uh, divorce papers, basically. And just this idea of how the camera is, you know, by actually having that, that physical shot of the camera pointing in one direction and turning around and pointing in another, in another direction, it, it, it implies to you that the, the camera is in charge of what you are seeing. The camera is in charge of the story. The camera is telling you what emotions you should be feeling at that moment. It is, you know, Roger Ebert describes it, and a bunch of people describe it as like, it is a, it, the, the man with the movie camera is a film about film. And I certainly have a fondness for that. I certainly have a fondness for films that are meta. Um, and, and this one is that. And especially David described in the introductory episode, there are a few instances in this movie where the uh, where superimposition is used in such a way where it seems like um, this the the Mikhail the guy with the camera is tiny he's inside of a pot or he's sitting on top of a building on the skyline and it just it reemphasizes this idea that the man with the movie camera is the one who is telling you what you should be watching who is dictating your eye your viewing basically and that's also reinforced by later on there's a little bit of a sequence where we see a still frame 
um, of something, and then we cut to an editor kind of at her working station, at her at her editing station, and then we cut back to that still frame but in motion. Um, and it, it 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 the the idea or, or what it what it spoke to or said to me was this idea of the editor is in control of the direction of this movie. Um, the editor can choose whether we're, whether it's a still frame that is being shown or whether the the the, the motion can proceed forward. It's basically I'm, I'm doing a bad job of, of describing it, but it, it it was more just this idea of the technicians are the one in control of the story that is being told. The technicians, the camera operator, the director, the editor, they are the ones who are telling you or who are who are dictating the pace and the progress of this movie. Um, it, it is. It is once again a, a filmmaker who is so so aware of how much control he has over the audience, basically, as to what they see, what they feel, and when they they see and feel these things. Basically, the editor or the director can put it on hold, or they can have it progress. They can show you that scene, or they can show you this scene. We have no control. We are we are we are reactive viewers in this experience, basically. Um, but. Here's also the problem that I have with him and with this film, and this is going to be a very snooty argument. I, I, I want to I preface that right now. I want to be out and open with you that I am going to sound as pretentious as the guy that I'm about to criticize as being um, pretentious and, and hypocritical. Um, this guy's mantra, Zygavertov, uh, was life as it is, and he is commonly credited with sort of... Um, paving the path or laying the groundwork or whatever construction term you want to use for this guy being the first um, of the cinema verite movement. And when you think of cinema verite, um, you know, you think of just reality as it is, un untouched, unmanipulated, basically. You think of, uh, or at least I think of the Maisels and, you know, and Grey Gardens and, and, and that sort of aura of, um, um, I'm forgetting the name, uh, but the 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 Rolling Stones documentary uh, that they filmed in which you know you see you see the the guy uh, or one of the attendees being stabbed by um, one of the Hell's Angels guys that were hired by by security but just this idea of a documentary which just observes which just is basically um, that's what I think of and that's what that that's what Ziga Vertov is being credited as, as as sort of being one of the founding fathers for and yet this film is not that. This film is not life as it is. Um, he says, you know, at the beginning of this film, there's no actors, there's no sets, and yet there is very clearly staging in this movie. The uh, woman waking up in the morning and getting dressed and brushing her teeth, that may not be an actress, but that is certainly staged. She's not being observed. He didn't sneak into this woman's apartment and just start watching her while she was sleeping. He, he told the woman to go through these motions. Um, or, or even the camera effects, you know? It's very cool that we have... Like I said, superimposition, split screen, over cranking, under cranking, um, that we have um, uh, all the and, and we have all this this kinetic um, cutting and especially cut to a you know cut to music and rhythm. Um, it's cool that we have a that we have these sequences where these people are sitting in a movie theater watching the film that we are watching and having this meta this this meta experience this film within a film basically, and yet camera effects are not life as it is by playing film backwards by by speeding it up by slowing it down that's not how that's not life as it is that is a technician manipulating 
the visual art to make or to elicit a certain experience for me, whether it's visceral, visceral or whether it's emotional or otherwise. Um, when you have a film which is supposedly depicting 24 hours in a Russian city, but was shot over three years in four different cities, Moscow, Odessa, Kharkiv, and Kiev, um, that is not life as it is. And now I am not criticizing the... Uh, the, the time that it takes to make a movie. I mean, you can't make a documentary that's 24 hours in a city unless you're uh, Andy Warhol, and what you're just doing is plunking down a camera and filming for 24 hours straight. Um, Andy Warhol fans, correct me if I'm wrong, that could have just been 20 hours of the Empire State Building, I think. I don't know. Uh, Andy Warhol films were not something that I was particularly interested in ever uh, getting into, but it, it's basically the... It's, it's not the, the time that it takes to make a movie. It's more the, the pretense of there's 24 hours in a day in this one city, but I'm compiling all this footage from different cities. And so this idea of here are the people, here is the industry that is making this go, it's not those people. It's a bunch of other different people. It's basically, it's kind of um, filming, <laughs> and feel free to disagree with this, this equivalency I'm about to make. It's basically, to me... Filming, um, you know, uh, CSI New York in Los Angeles. I don't know if it was CSI New York. There was some procedural show that had Gary Sinise a few years ago that was set in New York but was filmed in L.A., I believe. It, but, but it's that. It is manipulating the film to tell the story you want to tell. And that's fine on the surface, but not if you are the cinema verite guy not if you're the one that's claiming that you want to that you want to depict life as it is not if you're the guy who is thinking that narrative film is a corrupting force of the proletariat you can't be the guy that says there is a pure way to make cinema and then not make it that way it's nitpicky i'm sure or at least this is not a very important argument in the grand scheme of things but it just it bugged me and maybe it's because um I don't do well with experimental thing, uh, experimental films to begin with. Now, don't get me wrong. I love meshes, uh, meshes of the afternoon as much as the next guy. I've, as I said to David, I've got um, uh, last year at Marion Bad on my DVD shelf. I appreciate experimental film, and I, I appreciate that there are quote unquote rules on how to make movies, and then occasionally someone comes along and so thoroughly breaks those rules that you have a piece which just demands attention. I appreciate experimental cinema. I'm just not as captivated with it as a lot of other people are. This movie is only an hour and seven minutes long, and yet I found myself kind of getting, kind of disengaging with it um, after 30 or 40 minutes. Um, I don't want to say I was bored with it, because I could still appreciate some of the things that he was doing, but just this is sort of a... I don't know. Um, it's it's not enough to just kind of have fascinating editing techniques over an hour. I need more of a story to to sink my teeth into. I I, I respond well to a, a great script. I respond well to a narrative. I respond well to a a story that progresses. I respond well to protagonists that go through character arcs for supporting characters, for antagonists, whether they be um, people or forces or emotions or something. I, I respond well to fiction, narrative, film, and I don't respond as well to experimental film. Um, and I fully recognize that is my baggage. That's something I'm bringing to the film. That is not a fault of the film, but... What's not helping is just when you have this guy who 
um, claims to be one thing and yet seems to kind of contradict himself within one of his most um, iconic pieces, basically. I mean, it's strange to me that the, the Dogma 95 directors, um, I don't know many of them, but I know Lars von Trier was in the, in the Dogma 95 movement, which is basically this um, filmmaking collective in, I think, the 1990s that were basically... Uh, they got together and they kind of established some rules on how they were going to make their movies, which is basically they were going to use um, natural locations and just whatever was available to them. So a very minimalist, naturalistic cinema verite approach. And they utilized that approach because of um, what Ziga Vertov had done before. And yet Ziga Vertov, while he may have been, you know, mostly just filming things with a camera and a tripod was using very, for lack of better terms, unnatural techniques for telling that story. What he was filming was, sure, real life, but then what he was turning into was not real life. And there's a larger argument, I suppose, that could be had in the sense of, well, is any type of film real life? Because real life is real life. And filming real life, even that, there is a filter there then. There is a lens that you are, a literal and a figurative lens, that you are seeing that life through. There's this idea that, you know, even documenting um, nature, uh, specifically wildlife, is sort of itself destroying, to some degree, that equilibrium or the the sphere that you are then in and of course there's also the idea that sure narrative film has truth in it but it itself is very fake so there is this larger discussion i suppose that one could have as to what is truth and what is reality when it comes to the uh, cinema and and what cinema is showing but I, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm tired. That's not a, an argument that I particularly want to uh, have this evening. It's just more, um, I am, I guess, personally bugged by a guy that says there is a right way and a wrong way uh, to make cinema. There are things that you should do with movies and there are things that you should not do with movies. When you're that close-minded, um, I'm going to have a real hard time responding to the thing that you have put out. And now, um, I have to appreciate Ziga Veritov. I have to appreciate a man with a movie camera because of how it set an example and paved a path for so many filmmakers and films that would come after it. So I, I appreciate it and I respect it for what it is. Uh, but it's not my favorite movie. Um, he's probably never going to be my favorite director. Um, it's the same problem that I, as I said before, that I have with Jean-Luc Godard, where, um, you know, Jean-Luc Godard had very strong feelings of what cinema should be and that there are, um, right ways and wrong ways to make movies. I shouldn't say right ways and wrong ways. Um, there are right things to do with your film and there are wrong things to do with your film. And sure, I'm going to, uh, shit on, uh, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen just as much as the next person. Um, the Love Guru is probably the worst film that I've ever seen. So I have to concede that there are, yes, there are, in my mind, some wrong things to do with cinema. And yet, I don't know, I, the, but there are, there are, <laughs> there's room for more than just Ziga Vertov's in the world. There are room for more than just Jean-Luc Godard's in the world. Um, Listen, he may not be an auteur, but I respect the hell out of Ron Howard as a director anyway. Um, but that's that's besides the point. It, there's also this this uh, this question that 
um, I, I started asking myself that I didn't really come to an answer to. But even um, so, Ziga Vertov, a propagandist, but also the one of the forefathers of cinema verite. But can propaganda be cinema verite? Can propaganda be life as it is by just observing industry, by just observing people? Can that really be propaganda? Because propaganda has an agenda and a message to send to you. And propaganda is often manipulated and distorted and altered. Um, so can propaganda be cinema verite? And can cinema verite ever actually be propaganda? It was an interesting question that occurred to me that I just want to, I guess, leave there for you. And you can um, ruminate on it, if you will. And if you have any thoughts on it, sure, uh, you can email me on um, what those thoughts are at uh, youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. But um, that's it for Man with a Movie Camera. That's it for April. That's it for Soviet silent films or silent Soviet films whatever you want to call them, which means that next time you are hearing from me, there will be a new guest, there will be a new theme, and there will, of course, be a new month. Now, I uh, haven't finalized things just yet, but it seems like at this point, um, the guest is going to be my cast of Cthulhu co-host, James McCormick. Um, you may know him from past. He, he came on here to talk about Dario Argento. He's been here to talk about David Cronenberg. Um, but he's going to be coming on to talk about the films of John Sayles, it seems like. Um, and by it seems like, I mean, not that maybe he won't be talking about that. I'm warming in a larger scale of like, maybe he'll be here. He'll probably be here talking about that. If he is here, he will be talking about John Sayles, but I haven't nailed things down just yet. There's a few balls up in the air, but that's what it seems like is going to be the case. James McCormick, John Sayles, um, a filmmaker that has always fascinated me in the sense of I know his name and I don't know anything about him. Um, seems like he came up with a bunch of those uh, 70s new Hollywood guys. Um, but hasn't really had the reputation or the kind of career that any of them have. And yet, uh, looking him up on IMDb today, uh, two Oscar nominations. Yeah, I don't know for what. Um, but uh, yeah, two Oscar nominations, which are two more than I have. Um, but so that's what it seems like it's going to be um, next week, next month. So always curious to hear what you have to say. As I said, you can email me at badly at gmail. Ugh. You do movies badly at gmail.com. Nolan fixes teeth on Twitter. Uh, be sure to catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly at battleshipretention.com. Go to the podcast drop down menu and find I Do Movies Badly, or you can go directly to the source at I Do Movies Badly.podbean.com. So be sure to tune in next week, uh, ladies and gentlemen, where I will be talking with James McCormick about John Sales, probably. But one thing is that for sure is that I will be a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 